This is our series, Desecrated, The Faces of Sin. In this series, we will examine the perverse and pervasive nature of sin as we explore specific Old Testament narratives. We will see the many faces of sin and not just view sin in a one-dimensional way, but see its multifaceted nature. Decades of the kingdom of Southern Judea is going to have a word for us today about idolatry, just like he had a word for Israel as they were swallowed up in idolatry and injustice. Jeremiah's ministry was really hard. He predicted that the empire of Babylon would come and destroy Jerusalem and carry them into exile. And sadly, his word became a reality. He lived through a siege and the destruction of the city, and he witnessed exile in that place. And the book of Jeremiah teaches us that disobedience, it is destructive. But it also teaches us something about the nature of sin. So as we continue this series on desecrated, as we look at the various facets of sin, um, today we're going to look at the subject of sin as adultery. And the reason why we need different visions of sin and different languages of sin is because I believe that sometimes we can begin to think of sin in only a transactional way. Sin is not just breaking a rule. It is not just breaking a commandment. What I want you to see today is that that when we walk in disobedience and habitual sin, we are in fact breaking the heart of God. My hope is that we would move from the context of this kind of transaction to, to understanding that we are in a relationship. My hope is that we would see God as a, as a loving father and not as a judge, that we would see Jesus as the church's Bridegroom, not a, a buddy that we can push off to hang out with another lover. And so in this text, I'm going to refer to these other lovers. We've talked about these other lovers as idols, but I'm going to refer to them as, as flings. Because Israel man, really had flings. I'm going to show you that in a second. And, and we spiritually are married to Jesus as the church, but, but we sometimes have flings, and these flings are actually destructive. They promise life, but they bring death. Israel are pursuing false gods. They are seeking security with other nations. And it shows up in the fact that they are treating the poor unjustly. And even in today's text, we're going to see that while they're doing this, they are protesting their innocence the whole time while it's clear that they are guilty. So here's the big idea. Here's where I want to take you away. Summing up the sermon in a sentence. God's challenge to us is to draw near to Jesus who will satisfy you and resist flings which cannot satisfy you. Draw near to Jesus who will satisfy you, not who can satisfy you, not who might satisfy you, but who will satisfy you and resist flings, which cannot satisfy you. Now, I want to do something I normally don't do. I actually want to show you the hammer that built the bookshelf. 
I want to show you what the tools and how I went to the text to come up with this big idea, okay? I want to teach us to be good listeners to sermons so we can just say like, man, Jamal just didn't wake up in the middle of the night and have like, after he ate pizza and was like, oh, this is going to be the main subject. I want to show you how we got to this point. All right. Is that okay? Can I show off the hammer for a minute? All right. So here's, here's the hammer. Here's how we got to this big idea by looking at this text that we just read, which is Jeremiah chapter 2, 1 through 13, and then 20 through 22. In verse, uh, in chapter, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, This is what Jeremiah writes. For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me. The fountain of living water. And dug cisterns for themselves. Cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. Double evil. Abandoning God. And digging cisterns for themselves. Working to get something for themselves. And so here we see that Jeremiah uses this picture of a living fountain versus a system. And what Jeremiah is saying is Israel has made a horrible trade. They have traded flowing streams of fresh water for stale rainwater. And they have built this cistern where rainwater exists and they're going to it instead of fresh streams And the problem with the cistern is not only is it not fresh water, but it's broken. They can't even get to the water to enjoy it. It doesn't satisfy. So where do I get the term draw near to Jesus? And if we could put that main point back up uh, for people to see, please. Uh, Draw near to Jesus who will satisfy you. It's because Jesus is the fountain of living water. In John chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus meets a woman at the well. She's a Samaritan, and she's broken. And Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. So here, Jeremiah is talking to Israel, and the New Testament, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to talk to this woman, and he identifies himself as this fountain of living water that will satisfy. So that's where we get, draw near to Jesus who will satisfy you. Now, where do we get and resist flings which cannot satisfy you? Was I just trying to be cool and say something that hopefully you'll go and put on a t-shirt and be found in quills with during a week? (laughs) Nah, bro, that ain't it. That's not what I was trying to do. Got that from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they went so far from me and they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves? That word worthless that we see is the same word that we get in Ecclesiastes that means vapor or breath. It's this picture of something that is temporary that we chase, but that doesn't satisfy us. And here Jeremiah is teaching Israel that these idols that you are replacing Yahweh with are temporary. They are like a vapor. They are like a breath. They cannot satisfy you. So rather than go to them, run to Yahweh who will satisfy you. Run to Jesus who will satisfy you. So now I want to show you in the text, 
And here's where we're going for the rest of the sermon. We're going to look at this text, verses 1 through 13, 20 through 22. I'm just going to read it quickly, show you what the word is saying, show you what Jeremiah meant for his audience and what it means to us today. And then I want to give you a, a big takeaway in light of this passage. And then finally, I want to close out and talk about this a theme, a theme that we're going to see in the scripture, which is God as, as the bridegroom and the people of God as the bride. So first, let's look at the text. Jeremiah is writing Israel. And the thing I want you to see is how powerful it is. God is relating to Israel as a husband who has a wife who has just committed infidelity. And the reason we need to see this is some of us, we see God as this like cosmic being who if we rebel against him, is just a transaction. Um, as long as some point I say, I'm sorry, everything will go back to normal. Or if I sin, he really doesn't care. No, God is like, I'm a, I'm a person, I'm a spirit in three persons. I have a heart. You are in covenant with me. You are my people. It breaks my heart when you walk in disobedience and habitual sin. Look at verse one. God is going to start off by showing Israel pointing Israel back to their honeymoon stage when they first went into covenant with them. He says, and the word of the Lord came to me, go and announce directly to Jerusalem that this is what the Lord says. I remember the loyalty of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruit of His harvest, all who ate of it, found themselves guilty. Disaster came on them. This is the Lord's declaration. So God points them back to this honeymoon stage when they uh, first got delivered from Egypt. And he's like, just like a husband, remembering when they were just in love. Now, God has been very generous and gracious to Israel about them in the wilderness, right? Kind of like a, a, a husband looking back on when he first started dating his wife. He didn't see any blemishes, any flaws. He's like, let's not talk about that. Let's just talk about when we first met and how madly in love we are or were. And he says, I did two things when we were in the wilderness. He says, I, I remember your loyalty, your love as a, as a bride. And then he says, And then I protected you. I set you apart as holy and I protected you. You read the Old Testament, read Joshua, go back and read Deuteronomy. You see that God is protecting Israel from harm. But we're going to see in verses four through eight that God's going to take us from this honeymoon stage and show this family history. Things are going to go wrong. Israel is going to trade God in for worthless idols. And he's going to show us that like trading him for a worthless idol is like the Brooklyn Nets trading Kevin Durant for me. (laughs) He's like, that's what he's about to, he's about to make a case. It's like the Brooklyn Nets saying, Kevin Durant, we want to trade you for Pastor Jamal. Y'all know that's crazy because Kevin Durant is not a good preacher, right? Is he? (laughs) Yeah, that's how that works. (laughs) The Nets lose. (laughs) Verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. House of Jacob and all families of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Now look at God. Look at 
this husband, look, look at this groom talking to his bride. What fault did your fathers find in me that they went so far from me and they followed flings and became worthless themselves? They stopped asking, where is the Lord who brought us from the land of Egypt? Who led us through the wilderness, through the land of deserts and ravines, through the land of a drought and darkness, a land no one traveled through and where no one lived. I brought you to a fertile land to eat its fruit and bounty. But after you entered, you defiled my land. You made my inheritance detestable. The priest quit asking, where's the Lord? The experts in the law no longer knew me and the rulers rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and followed useless idols. They followed flames. It's like, listen, your leaders, they went astray. The book of Jeremiah is all about how these leaders turned in their prophetic edge for, for profit, for comfort, for being accepted by the people. When God was bringing a word of judgment, they were like, no, 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 no. Let's tell them something else. But look at God as this husband. He's pleading to, to his wife. He's saying, what did I do? Why did, you, why did you stop calling? Why did you stop asking me how was my day? Why did you stop going out on dates with me? Why did you stop loving me? What did I do? What fault was it? Was the the fertile land that I gave you, was the milk and honey, was it not enough? Why would you trade my love for this? His heart is broken. So he moves from his honeymoon stage to his family history saying, listen, this is what your fathers did. When I gave them that land, rather than worship me, they started worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. And why did they worship the gods of the Canaanites? They worshiped the god of the Canaanites because they wanted more blessing, more fertility, more land. That's what Baal promised. Worship me and I'll give you lushness. I'll give you fertility. I'll give you more success. They weren't satisfied with him. Now God is going to take him to family court. He moves from the honeymoon to family history. Now they're in divorce court. Verse 9, therefore, I will bring a case against you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will bring a case against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and take a look. Send someone to Kedar and consider carefully. See if there has ever been anything like this. Look, he's standing in the court and he's saying, listen, go to Kedar. He's saying, go to Cyprus. What is he saying? They both were on two opposite ends, the east and the west. He's saying, go throughout the whole world and see if anything like this has ever happened. Like what, God? Verse 11, has a nation ever exchanged its gods? But they were not gods. Yet my people have exchanged their glory for flings, for useless idols. Then he talks to the heavens. He talks to the angels. He talks to creation. He says, be appalled at this heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolated. This is the Lord's declaration for my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me. The fountain of living water and dug works to build cisterns for themselves, crack cisterns that that can't even hold water. Verse 20. Now, this is where it gets real. For long ago, 
I broke your yoke. I tore off your chains. You insisted I will not serve on every high hill and under every green tree. You lay down like a prostitute. This is God talking to his wife. Now, in most English translations, translators have chosen to soften what is actually said here to be more respectable. More literal translation is, under every green tree, you spread your legs wide open. Every opportunity you get, you have an affair. He says, I planted you a choice vine from the very best seed. How then could you turn into a degenerate foreign vine? Even if you wash with lye and use a great amount of bleach, the stain of your iniquity is still in front of me. This is the Lord God's declaration. So he makes this case and he builds it. He tells them, listen, you are are choosing flings over me. And he uses very sexual uh, language to make a spiritual truth. God created us as sexual beings with desire. He also created us as spiritual beings. It's not an issue of if we're worshiping, we're always worshiping something or someone. It's a matter of who we're worshiping. It's impossible not to worship. At any given time, our heart is either embracing, this is intimate language, embracing God as our husband, or we are embracing another idol as our spouse. We talked a few weeks ago about how those idols can be both both near, very easy to see. Perhaps it's a job or family, perhaps it's power or, or respect. But some of those things is what we call far idols. They're, they're, they're harder to see. Maybe it's perfectionism or approval. But when we choose to turn from trusting in Jesus as our source of fulfillment to success, to money, to being light, above being faithful, to greed, we have a flame. We open our legs to a foreign lover. And this breaks God's heart. And now here's the thing. As we move to takeaway, the thing I want you to see is that this is all of us. This is humanity. This is me. This is you. And this is us without the Spirit of God. This is what the Bible teaches us in Romans chapter 3, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there is none who are good, no, not one. This is you. With all due respect, this is me. Apart from the grace of God, apart from the Spirit of God, we are prostitutes. We are unfaithful. We are what Jeremiah is going to go and show us in his text. Look at this in verse number 23. How can you protest? 
I'm not defiled. Now God's wife is talking back saying, listen, we haven't done anything. No, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. I have not followed the bells. Look at your behavior in the valley. Acknowledge what you have done. You are a swift young camel twisting and turning on her way. A wild donkey at home in the wilderness. She sniffs the wind and the heat of her desire. Who can control her passion? All who look for her will not become weary. They will find her in her mating season. He said, this is you, Israel. Rather than to be faithful to me and your covenant, you're like a camel in heat, constantly running around looking for something and someone to satisfy you. And these idols don't even have to work hard to do so. This is you, the ones who I redeemed from Egypt, the ones who I brought out and I kept in the the wilderness, the ones that I gave their own land and set up on a hill of Jerusalem where there was protection and wealth and and beauty. This is you. You you run out on me. You, You cheat on me. Come here, Hosea. Yes, Pastor Jamal, I had a story. God told me to go and marry a prostitute named Gomer. And he told me to go and marry Gomer because he wanted to teach me a lesson about his faithfulness to Israel and how she has broken a covenant. And here, Jeremiah is showing us the same thing. And the question is, like, how? Who can help us? Who can help us from looking crazy like a camel in heat? Who can help us keep your feet from going bare and your throat from thirsty? Who can help us from running ourselves to the ground with guilt, shame, and fear? We can't help ourselves. Sin is not only adultery. Sin is addictive. It is, the Bible says we are slaves to sin apart from Christ. And every world religion says, well, the way that you solve the problem is you get yourself together. You do these five things. You worship these two million gods. You hope at the end that your good deeds outweigh your bad. But that's not what God said to Israel and Jeremiah. He says, listen, you've prostituted yourself so bad that even if you wash with lye and use a great amount of bleach, the stain of your iniquity is still in front of you. Seems hopeless. But there's good news. There's good news. There's great news. The bad news is that we are helpless and we are hopeless on our own. The good news, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us settle this matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. We can't wash ourselves. We can't clean out the stain of our guilt, our shame. We can't stop ourselves from laying under every green tree with our legs wide open. But God has what it takes to make us clean. Jeremiah Just a chapter over says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. But later on, we're going to see in Jeremiah chapter 31 that he's going to 
preach and he's going to be like, you know what? You can't circumcise your hearts. What God is going to have to do is God is going to have to give you a new heart. Over and over in this text, the word is repeated abandoned. Verse 13, they have it abandoned. Verse 17, by abandoning. Verse 18, recognize how evil and bitter it is for you to abandon the Lord your God. So what's God's, that's God's words to Israel. What's God's word to his church? All of us are tempted daily to have these flings, to find our identity, our source, our significance in people, places, and things around us, thinking that it will satisfy us. But we drink it, and like salt water, it makes us all the more thirsty. In James chapter 4, James has some hard words for the, the Christians that he's writing to. He says, you adulterous people, uses Old Testament language. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy to God. Some of us need to hear that because we are having an affair, a fling with the world. We're not worshiping Jesus and Jesus alone. We're worshiping Jesus and the things that sound good to us, sound less confrontational, sound safe, sound loving, even though Jesus says that's not safe, that's not loving, that's the way to destruction. What's God's word to us, adulterous people? What's God's word to me who can be more fickle at times in my heart than faithful, more fearful than courageous? Verse 5, it's relationship. It's not seeing God as this cosmic being who wants transactions, but it's seeing God as this, this person who wants us, this groom who wants his bride, the church, who's jealous for us and zealous for her, who fights for her. Verse 5, or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in, in us envies intensely the Holy Spirit that he's placed in his church when we are walking in disobedience? It's envying this, this fellowship with, with the Father and with Jesus saying, I wish you would get out of this tavern and stop drinking your sorrows away and run to the one who is living water. I wish that you would Lay that blunt aside and, and come to the one who is good and faithful and true and who can empower you. With his spirit, it envies intensely. But what's God's, how does God heal our adultery? But he gives greater grace. He gives greater grace. God doesn't condemn us. He gives grace. Paul says in Titus, the grace of God has now appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Teaching us to say no to ungodliness. God's grace, God's resources at Christ's expense. God's grace, God's unmerited, undeserved favor. God's grace, which 
brings us to repentance. God's grace, his messy grace, his amazing grace, his unfathomable grace, his immutable grace, a grace that not only saves us, but a grace that sanctifies us. And how does that grace sanctify us? It reminds us that we, as Christ's bride, yes, we are adulterers. Yes, we are prostitutes. Yes, we have whored ourselves. But God, the story of the Bible is that Jesus Christ, who is God and King, he comes to earth in order to save his bride. And when he gets here, his bride is on the floor, caught in adultery, surrounded by people who are ready to stone her. But this king, even though it's going to bring shame to himself and shame to his kingdom, he walks in the middle of the circle. He picks his bride up. He kisses her. He puts her in some new robes and some new clothes. He exits her out the circle. He lays down on the circle and he says, stone me. Treat me as the prostitute. Treat me as the one who lays under every green tree. Treat me as the one who is unfaithful. Treat me as the one who is lost. Treat me as the one who is a betrayer. And he goes up to Golgotha's hill, beaten and worn down, abused and accused and, and misused, and he's stressed wide and he's hung high and he's dropped low. And the wrath of his holy and righteous and beautiful father is put on him so that his bride can go free and say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And we get to live as if we never Sin, as if we've never stepped out of the marriage, as if we've never had a fling. And when we have a fling, we can go before the Father with confidence, with boldness, knowing that he will receive us and, and he's not going to bring it up. As far as the east is from the west is as far as your sin is from my memory. He throws it in a sea of forgetfulness. He doesn't bring it back up. He said, that's over. That was last week. Why are you still on last week? I love you. That was last night. Why are you still on last night? I love you. Look to my son, Jesus Christ, and what he has done for you. And understand that there's nothing you can do to separate you from his love. That's grace. That's the gospel. That's what transforms us. And then he gives us means of grace gives us his word, the way we grow to stop going to flings as we fill our mind with truth. That's what the text says in James. He says, resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. That's two verses down for what we just read. As Christ's bride, how do we defeat Satan? We, we defeat Satan by understanding that we are fine. What? Pastor Jamal, what do you mean? What do you mean? I mean, you find you the bride of Christ. You've been justified, declared righteous. You are no longer a prostitute. You are purified by the blood of Jesus. And Satan wants you to not know how good you look because he's jealous. He's jealous because there is redemption for you. He's jealous because there's not just a second chance, but there's another chance. 
He's jealous because he knows that God is with you. And he wants to try to woo you away from your husband. He wants you to be unfaithful. But here's what the Bible tells us about Satan. He is the father of lies. The truth is not in him. Every day, spitting game at you. Something goes wrong at work. Oh, man, God doesn't love me because if God loved me, Patty Sue wouldn't be so mean to me. And Satan's like, hey, baby, boo. You know, if I was your God, if I was your God, I'll give you bread and water. and I'll give you the world. Just running game. Girl, you look so good. If God really loved you, if God was really for you, if this Christianity thing was really true, and what does the word say? The word says, no, you, you fill your mind with truth. You get yourself in some community with some other people who can speak truth to you while Satan's putting his arm around you. Be like, stop it, you married. You remember God's faithfulness that you went underwater and you were baptized. You take communion. You remember that God so loved the world that he gave. That's what the text says. Jeremiah chapter 2. Text gives us a, a clue to how to resist Satan, how to stay faithful. And the clue is just looking into the father, Father's heart. What fault did your fathers find in me? Why did you stop calling? Why are you far away? What's the key? The key is getting in the presence of God. Resisting Satan, knowing that he will flee. Why will he flee? Because when you remember who you belong to and how good he is and how kind he is and how merciful he is, and when you, you fight to stay in the presence of the Lord, remembering his grace, Satan, after a while, is going to leave you around alone. Why? Because he sees your husband, and your husband ain't no punk. Your husband is the lion of the tribe of Judah. In the presence of the Lord is the is joy. It's joy. God loves you so much. God loves you. God loves you. All of your sin, all of your iniquity, all of your fickleness, all of my sin, all of my iniquity, all of my fickleness, and he still loves us. He still loves us. He's, he's not going to give up on you. He wants the best for you. He wants life for you. That's what we see as we close with this theme of the bride of Christ. I'm going to have to hurry to a close here. We saw the text. We see the takeaway. Embrace Jesus and and what he's done for you as the bride. And the thing I want you to see is just that, that we are the bride of Christ. And we've been purified by the blood of Christ. And in the midst of discouragement, remember what Jesus taught us about the bride. He used this illustration of the ten virgins. Remember that? And the basic parable is just remain faithful don't grow weary and waiting. 
And then in John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus tells the disciples that he's leaving. He says, listen, I go away and I prepare a place for you. I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be. And here's what's crazy about this chapter. Here's what's crazy. What's happening here is that, that Jesus is speaking as a bridegroom to the bride. When an Israelite would get married, they would get betrothed. And the husband would go away, and sometimes that wasn't very far, and prepare the place that they would spend the rest of their lives together. And he would try to make it sacred because that night after getting married was a, a very sacred thing, a very sacred revelation. This is what Jesus is saying as, as the groom to us, the church. He says, I see that you're disappointed. I see that your wish list hasn't quite worked out. I see the agony. I see the pain. I, I see the frustration. I see the sin. I see that you've been hurt and sinned against. I see the trauma. But don't you forget that I have gone to prepare a place for you. In this place that I prepare for you, there's no more sin. There's no more sickness. There's no more shame. There's no more trauma. There's no more tears. All there is is the Father's loving embrace. And when you see what I prepare for you, you're going to look back and say, that light and momentary affliction did not compare to what he has prepared for me. Don't let Satan run game on you. You are precious to God. I don't care how much money is not in your bank. I don't care what the aches and pains of your body is saying. I don't care how you feel. Y'all hear me say it all the time. Feelings are great indicators. I hear you, boo, but horrible <laughs> dictators. And that's not an adultery. That was my wife. Amen. <laughs> don't follow your feelings. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Don't follow the culture. Remember his cross. And everything will be all right. There's some here who are not in Christ. I just want to show you something real quick, how much Christ loves you. One of the last words of the Bible is Revelation chapter 22. And look at what it says. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Who's the, the spirit? The Holy Spirit and the bride. Who's the bride? The church, the preacher. And what's the preacher saying? Come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires Take the water of life freely given today. Jesus is saying you can become a part of the bride. You can become a member of my body if you would just come. Nothing else will satisfy. No other lesser lovers will satisfy. You will find yourself barefoot in the desert looking for love when God has shoes ready for you in a place prepared for you. You don't have to come knowing everything. All you have to know is that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, lived the life that you could not live, died the death that you deserve to die, and rose with all power. If you place your faith and trust in him, in him alone, he will come and make his home in your heart. You will be a part of, your a part of his body. You can't pay. You can't earn it. It is freely 
given. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.